Hello, and welcome to the National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast, brought to you by the Southern Arizona Office. My name is Matt Gubar. And I'm Charlotte Hart. Welcome to the National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast. In this episode, we are going to talk about Buffalo Soldiers. Uh, this is just one part of a series. Uh, it's worth mentioning before we start that we really wanted to release this episode in February uh, to coincide with African American History Month. Unfortunately, because of the partial government shutdown, uh, we weren't able to get everything together in time. Of course, we don't need a certain month uh, to talk about African American military history. So with that said, uh, let's get to it. Uh, so our interview today is with Mr. Joe Sertain. Mr. Sertain is a historian and a historical reenactor. He focuses on African-American military history, particularly the period of time between the American Civil War and the end of what is collectively called the Indian Wars. What you'll get from the interview is that he is a wealth of knowledge about military history, but also the fact that he's a historical reenactor uh, gives him some insight into the day-to-day lives of soldiers from that period of time. And it also makes him a really powerful educator uh, because he's able to go into schools and uh, portray parts of history that aren't often a part of the school curriculum. I'm especially excited to offer this interview with Mr. Sertain, and I was excited to be able to do the interview um, for a number of reasons. Uh, as I've mentioned before, I am an archaeologist, but came up through the National Park Service as an interpreter, and I spent a season at Chiricahua National Monument in uh, southeastern Arizona in the Chiricahua Mountains, and there is a um, uh, an encampment there for Buffalo Soldiers that were uh, dispatched from uh, Fort Bowie, which is also a National Historic Site. So uh, while I was there, I did research into some um some of the <coughs> so while i was there as an interpreter i put together a program on the encampment um but i was never able to really bring it to life and so this interview with mr certain um really brings the day to day to life you know in my day coming up through school history focused on military movements not necessarily the social aspects and the lasting impacts of um of these decisions and that were made and um and so bringing those two together in this interview is really exciting for me this is Matt Gubard and Charlotte Hart we're here with Mr. Joe Sertain historian, historical reenactor, and founder of the Descendants Jubilee Project. Hi, Mr. Satane. Hello, Matt. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So we have some questions for you uh, about some of the work that you do uh, whenever you're ready. I'm ready. All right. So uh, you're the founder of what's called the Descendants Jubilee Project. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what that project is uh, and how it started? Well, the the Descendants Jubilee Project is a a program that I've uh, used for, oh, I guess 15 years uh, to acquaint people with the the part of history that's been ignored, um, primarily with uh, black military heroes and Western heroes and it is really it was really started because uh most of my life uh I never encountered any black heroes um in American history uh, and I always wondered why that was given given our involvement in every conflict that the United States has ever been engaged in and um and our involvement in the uh, the development of the frontier and so many other things. So I went about researching to find out, uh, first of all, why that was, and secondly, uh, to uh, learn about who some of those people were and where they were involved and, and what they did uh, 
to to make them historical. Um, as I was uh, researching uh, some things, I uh, uh, found out uh, about the uh, uh, the role of the United States Colored Troops uh, of the uh, American Civil War and how involved they were in the Union victory over the Confederacy and how the uh, the Union forces, the United States forces, uh, uh, could have lost the Civil War had they not involved uh, black soldiers at the time that they did, which contributed to the the victory um, uh, over over the rebels um, from about uh, I guess 1863 or thereabouts to the end of the war. So I went further trying to find out what happened to those men and and what kinds of things were they involved in beyond that. But as I was doing the research, I you know I learned a lot about American history from uh, especially military history from the French and Indian War before we were the United States, uh, right up through uh, present day, and uh, and I learned that during that time period there were no heroes other than white Anglo-Saxon heroes in American history. Uh, they were not allowed. Most mainstream historians uh, never acknowledged the role that people of color had in uh, major events in American history. And um, part of what I was looking for, and, and I'm still looking for now, is um, why is it that there are no roles for people of color or women, for that matter, um, in American history until until recently. Um, there were, in fact, there were more roles for 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 women, uh, more publicized roles of women uh, in uh, American history than they were for people of color. And I just learned that that you know that uh, uh, it was pretty much agreed upon that that part of history uh, wasn't really the uh, the stories that would be projected about the the building of, and development of the United States, especially uh, as we talk about west of the Mississippi uh, during the time of the frontier west up until uh, 1890. So I went about researching a lot of that and uh, pulling it together, compiling it, and presenting it to audiences. And then I decided to, uh, as I presented it to audiences, it was called the Shadow Warriors Project. Um, and as I developed the, uh, the website, I decided to call it the Descendants Jubilee Project. Uh, first of all, because I'm a descendant of a, uh, a Civil War sergeant in the 1st South Carolina Volunteer Infantry, and also because the Jubilee was a, a word and a symbol to black folks um, during the antebellum period. Uh, it was, uh, we, we looked for and fought for the coming of Jubilee, which was a, uh, a triumph over slavery. Uh, so the Jubilee could be equated with another word, uh, freedom. Uh, and there was a, there's a lot of music about it. There's songs, there's stories. And in black culture, the Jubilee has a, has a, a true day-to-day uh, -day meaning. It's just not a word that's used. There's a whole history that goes along with it. So that's why the Descendants Jubilee Project. Hmm. So part, as part of that, uh, you're a historical reenactor, which for the listeners means that you help to recreate historical events or periods, and you actually wear the period clothing, including all of the equipment and the tools and the weapons, and you're on horseback, uh, as soldiers would have been. Do you have a sense for how your experiences as a reenactor might 
uh, inform your knowledge of the past? Well, yeah, that uh, that is uh, it was interesting as I was developing my character. Um, uh, I I ride as uh, uh, I decided to ride as George Goldsby, who was a he was a soldier during the Civil War, um, and was a was a manservant to a Confederate officer uh, uh, who had come from Selma, Alabama, and served with the United States Colored Troops in, during the Civil War. And then joined the Tenth Cavalry after the Civil War, and became a, what's called what's now called a Buffalo Soldier. But um, with the Tenth Cavalry, he was the third Sergeant Major of the Tenth Cavalry. Uh, and then he mustered out after his first tour and reenlisted. and was a first Sergeant um, through the second tour of duty. Um, and actually, there's a story about him and how he left the left the military uh, that uh, that contributes to the tales of the black outlaws of the old west. So um, uh, it it allowed me to learn about uh, the clothing, the 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 geography of the old west. Uh, some of the traditions and habits of the Western frontier from a black perspective, and also about a lot of the prejudices and and complexities of day to day life on the uh, during the Civil War period, but also uh, later on uh, on the Western frontier. And that's a pretty good lead into the the next question that I had um, on your website, and we'll put a link to that um, so that folks can look at it. Uh, you refer to African American soldiers during the 1800s as in the shadows of American history. I thought that it was a really sort of poetic way of saying how their contributions have been willfully ignored, uh, aside from the basic fact that soldiers and their families deserve a lot of recognition for the sacrifices they made. Um, one question I, I wanted to ask is, how do you think that that lack of recognition can affect people in today's world, uh, especially children? Well, it, it affects kids the same way it affected me. Um, when you don't know who you are, you don't really understand who you can be. You don't recognize any potential. You don't recognize what the possible accomplishments can be. If you look at you look and everywhere where you see something that's exciting that you are thrilled with, it's not done by any person of color. It's not by it's not there's no participants of people who look like you, which was one of the things that used to baffle me. And um, you know, I, I know when I was in elementary school and in high school. Um, I would ask questions that teachers couldn't answer or wouldn't answer. Uh, I think back then it could have been they couldn't answer, uh, and now it's more that they wouldn't answer. But it's largely because of the way history is written and the way history is projected. Um, so uh, I think it has a lot to do with who people become. Uh, as they grow into adulthood and what they think of themselves uh, socially and culturally uh, as they transition into uh, 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 productive citizens. So in your role as a historical reenactor, I mean, you're providing that information about the past, but you're also, you're like a piece of living history. You're allowing, especially kids to sort of see the person in the flesh and, and sort of see it as living history. I think that's probably a really, really effective effective tool um, for folks to, to interact with somebody sort of from the past. Well, yeah, it's the best way to learn about things that you don't really have uh, uh, an interest in. Uh, you can tell somebody a story about the Frontier West, but if you kind of reenact the story that you're telling, 
with all of the props and accoutrements and create the environment that you're talking about, people pay more attention and they participate more fully. Um, so I, I always do presentations that are interactive. I don't just lecture. I allow people to ask questions and I, I, I talk to them about different things. I, with, with kids and when I have, when I'm doing it with my horse, we talk about the different kinds of saddles and I show them to them and tell them why those saddles look like they do. Mm -hmm. What the chevrons on an on army coat are for, what the stripes on the legs are for, what the different colors of the army branches are, and how soldiers tell each, can tell each other apart on the battlefield or and when they're away from their from their garrison. So people have a better understanding uh, when they watch something or they see something about. Uh, you know, the difference between a corporal and a sergeant and a, a sergeant and a commissioned officer and things like that. They also learn about uh, why Western hats are the way they are and why there's a reason for a high-heeled uh, boot uh, with cowboys and what the lariat was for and things like that uh, so that they can identify more closely not only with you, the presenter, but the character that you're portraying. Sure. So uh, you, your character um, served as a Buffalo soldier. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, the name. Um, I'm curious to know where the name Buffalo soldier originated and if that was the way that soldiers would have referred to themselves. Well, listen, there's no way to really verify what I'm about to tell you, but it's commonly thought and also uh, from the uh, the regimental reports of uh, some of the uh, the units and the company reports uh, that the soldiers of the 10th Cavalry, the mounted soldiers of the 10th Cavalry, uh, got their name from the Cheyenne Nation in 1867 uh, at a uh, at a battle. Uh, with Cheyenne along the Saline River. Uh, and it was largely due to the way they met each other in combat. Um, the Cheyenne were great warriors, and uh, in their warrior societies, they had uh, respect for uh, fierce combatants. They recognized valor, and they recognized honor. And they recognized courage. So, uh, uh, and it was mostly uh, <clears throat> it was kind of heroic combat. They didn't. They, it was one on one. You distinguish yourself as a fighter. The the native the the warrior societies didn't uh, didn't plan necessarily the way a military a U.S. military uh, company would plan to fight. They fought as individuals, and no matter how large the group was, each individual was trying to distinguish himself in battle. And what they 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 recognize uh, <clears throat> first of all that they they outnumbered this group of soldiers uh, whom they had never seen before uh, uh, in in Kansas on the open plains. They had never seen them before, and they had never seen their battle tactics before and the way they fought. So descriptively, when they when they sang songs and told stories after battle about the group of men that they encountered, they described them as buff as wild buffaloes, and buffaloes uh, which the Cheyenne and the Plains tribes depended on uh, for their existence. Uh, would fight uh, when cornered, and would fight until they just couldn't, until they were exhausted. Uh, so when they and they would drop or they would die, but they would never uh, quit in a fight. So those kinds of stories kept being told until the title emerged as Wild Buffaloes or Buffalo Soldiers. It's a lot like the name that the Cree gave the 
uh, United, the uh, Canadian Mounted Police, when they called them pony soldiers. Hmm. <coughs> so I, I think probably a lot of the listeners are, are familiar with the term Buffalo Soldier. So did the name persist uh, sort of after that, that Indian War period? Well, what happened was the soldiers themselves didn't call themselves Buffalo Soldiers. That's the nick the nickname that was given them by the Native Americans were descriptive of black soldiers in blue uniforms, especially in the winter, because they wore buffalo uh buffalo skin overcoats. Um and their hair was thick and woolly like the coat of a of a buffalo. So there was a, an immediate identification. Um the the name the nickname uh, really got more public identification in the 20th century. Uh, in the in the 19th century, it was only used in the black community uh, because of the stories that had uh, uh, filtrated into uh, into the home communities about the the deeds of the ninth and the tenth cavalry. And, and by the way, the eventually also all black soldiers of the United States uh, during the frontier days, whether they were infantry or cavalry or even some of the <coughs> limited <coughs> artillery um, units were called, uh, you know, they, they adopted the name Buffalo Soldiers. But it was originally uh, a name that was given to the 10th Cavalry. In fact, their battle flag, their uh, regimental flag, uh, has a buffalo in its crest. I don't know if you've ever seen one, but the crest of the 10th Cavalry uh, is a uh, contains a buffalo. Hmm. So I, when we were talking before, uh, you mentioned that you're from Philadelphia, and you mentioned that you remember growing up and actually seeing uh, pictures of 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 soldiers in people's houses. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, how soldiers were sort of portrayed in African-American communities, uh, particularly as because we've already talked about how sort of in white culture uh, or in, in the white communities, they weren't really given any credit at all. Um, so I wonder uh, if you could just talk a little bit about maybe seeing photographs or hearing stories about, about soldiers um, growing up. Oh yeah, there were always stories, uh, and the, the the reality is that there were ver there were few photographs, there were pictures and likenesses, but during that time period, because of the re remoteness of their of their battle stations, there was not too much of an opportunity for soldiers, especially soldiers in the cavalry, uh, to be photographed. But toward the the latter part of the 19th century, I guess after the, especially after the uh, uh, the period of the Civil War, where photography came into its own, there were uh, opportunities for uh, uh, pictures to be made of uh, black soldiers in uniform, uh, with all the regalia and accoutrements of, of the of the cavalry in the West. And what would happen is that the black community has always been proud of its military history. And very, very often uh, you'd hear the stories about families uh, who had a, uh, you know, a father or an uncle or a grandfather or something who was either part of the 9th or the 10th Cavalry. And uh, they would have a picture of that person on the wall. And, you know, in the old days, you'd have a picture of Jesus Christ. You'd have a picture of uh, Lincoln. And in cases like here in Philadelphia, because the, the 10th Cavalry was heavily recruited in Philadelphia, uh, because when the... 9th and 10th Cavalry were first being formed, they needed people who could read and write to make up the ranks of the non-commissioned officers. Um, so there was a, uh, a recruitment sp specifically here in Philadelphia. Hmm. 
to recruit soldiers for the uh, for the military, and they had a recruitment office and a recruitment officer for uh, 10th Cavalry, for Colonel Grierson's Cavalry. Uh, so a lot of uh, black soldiers from were recruited from Philadelphia, and not just for uh, the Indian Wars, the Civil War. Uh, there were a lot of recruitments, a lot of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania recruits from uh, the uh, uh, for the United States Colored Troops in the Civil War. So the families identified with that because that was one way to prove that their men were making a contribution, and and secondly that black men could do anything a white man could. So that was that was very important because we had to constantly prove that we were worth, you know, recognition or worth getting the vote or worth being able to get a job. And all those kinds of things were important. So they were used for inspiration. So you, uh, you gave us a book, uh, or you keyed us into a book, uh, called the Buffalo soldiers by, um, William and Shirley Leckie, uh, really interesting book, a lot of in-depth information in there. In reading through it, uh, one of the things I sort of picked up on is that there were a lot of dangers sort of threatening any soldier in the American West um, during the, the period of, of what's kind of colloquially called the Indian Wars. The environment was harsh. There were outlaws everywhere. Um, they were dealing with, with combatants, Native American combatants. But Buffalo soldiers also had to contend with a lot of unjust treatment, um, as we've mentioned, very little recognition from the military, and really a general lack of respect and sometimes blatant violence from some of the frontier communities that they were ordered to protect. It sounds like uh, young men in communities on the East Coast were aware of those hardships, um, but they still enlisted. So one question I wanted to ask is, what do you think are some of the reasons that young men continue to join up given the given the hardships that they knew they would probably face? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Uh, one of them, it was, a, it was a steady job, okay, uh, and it was difficult after the Civil War for black men to find work, um, honorable work, um, anywhere doing anything. But uh, the, the uh, uh, uh way they were treated in the frontier west uh if i may i'd like to tell you a little bit of a story to flesh out the character of george goldsby yeah, uh george goldsby came from as i said during the civil war he came from selma alabama he was a manservant to a confederate officer and he switched sides uh he was a teamster and he started, uh, he switched sides and joined the Union Army and was a, uh, was a teamster for the Union Army. And after the, uh, after, at the end of the Civil War, he's one of the people who, uh, when he mustered out of the United States Colored Troops, joined the 10th Cavalry, which was just being formed in 1866. Um, he went through the the uh, 10th Cavalry and rose uh, through the ranks of the non-commissioned officers to become Sergeant Major, which is the highest-ranking enlisted man in the military. Um, but um, he was stationed in 1872 uh, at, in uh, uh, Texas. Uh, where he mustered out, and when he re-enlisted, he was uh, he was dropped back to first sergeant rather than sergeant major, which is a regimental rank. He was uh, 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 he was regimental sergeant major. He he was dropped back to the uh, first sergeant, and as a first sergeant, he was assigned to Fort Concho, Texas, right outside of San Angelo. And San Angelo was a very was very much. Uh, a racist town like most of the towns in Texas at the time. They didn't want to see any northern soldiers, and a black soldier in a blue uniform was, was definitely something they just did not want to see, unless they were in trouble. 
when they were in trouble from outlaws or marauding Indians or something like that, then they were needed. But um, during the regular course of things, they were not accepted or wanted uh, <clears throat> to be uh, even in town. And uh, in San Angelo, they had a habit of uh, harassing black soldiers when they came into town from Fort Concho. George Goldsby was the first sergeant during a time when some men from the 10th Cavalry went into San Angelo, Texas, and they were harassed by the, by the townspeople, and one of his NCOs had the stripes removed, uh, uh, or cut off his jacket and stripped from his pants leg, which is something, I don't know if you were ever in the military, but for an NCO to have his rank his visible rank stripped from him by people who are not authorized to do so. Um, you can get a world of, you can get into a world of hurt like that. So uh, these men, when they left town, they went back to Fort Concho, and they reported what had happened to them. Well, uh, George Goldsby, being the first sergeant of the, of the company at that time, <clears throat> allowed his men to uh, pick up their carbines and go back into San Angelo to uh, teach the cowboys and, you know, the drovers and and uh, some of the other miscreants there um, that you didn't mess around with a soldier of the United States Army. Uh, a gunfight ensued, and uh, townspeople died, and I think one Buffalo soldier was killed. But during that time period, um, the Texas Rangers were also uh, in authority in Texas, and they were about as racist as, <clears throat> as you could be. Um, they went out to Fort Concho to see Colonel Grierson to try and take into custody the, the, uh, the soldiers had, who had been in the gunfight in San Angelo. Um, the town was in an uproar. Um, I don't, I don't need to tell you how, how, how troublesome the environment was, but, uh, one of the things that Colonel Gerson did, and that's one of the reasons why he's revered today, is he wouldn't let the Texas Rangers take his men. And one of the things that he did was he allowed their first sergeant, who was George Goldsby, he allowed him to ride out of the east gate of the fort at Fort Concho. And Goldsby left his wife and a child and went, uh, went AWOL so as, he, so as not to be taken by the, uh, by the Texas Rangers. Um, and that was the kind of environment that they existed in. Now, the, he was hunted for, and there are stories... Uh, after that, that he had joined Pancho Villa and that he had, uh, uh, you know, that he was riding in, uh, that he that he was actually riding uh, with the uh, Comancheros. There are all kinds of stories, but in fact, um, his son grew to become uh, Cherokee Bill. Have you ever heard of Cherokee Bill? I have, yeah. Well, that was George Goldsby's son. Wow, um, and uh, uh, and that's how he was the he was the son of a of a uh, of a tenth cavalry uh, first sergeant. Hmm. Uh, so that's that's how all this stuff um, is interlinked. But it also points to uh, how difficult things were for black black soldiers. Black troopers on the frontier were not accepted by anybody, even the townspeople that they saved and the railroads that they protected and the stagecoaches that they um, that they rescued from peril, uh, they were not accepted as uh, 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 they weren't, the, what they did was not heroic to those people. Uh, they found a way of justifying their continued hatred for black soldiers. Part of it had to do with the Civil War. 
but a lot of it had to do with just the pure hatred and uh, and racism that existed, and in some places still exists today. Sure. Um, so those are the kinds of things that that black soldiers had to uh, fight through, even as they protected uh, the developing West from uh, outlaws and and uh, 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 Indians and and other kinds of marauders um, uh, that had western towns and and railroads and stagecoaches and just about everything else had them in jeopardy. But they also did a lot of mapping of the frontier. They they mapped water holes and uh, they did a lot of the surveying uh, that uh, resulted in the railroad moving west and telegraph lines and things like that. So it was a mixed bag, but it had to be done by valiant people. And those are the people who were ignored by mainstream historians. They never wrote or even acknowledged that those kinds of things had happened, even though the records, I mean, all this stuff, the stuff that I'm saying is, is you can find it in county records and newspaper clippings and all kinds of things, uh, the regimental returns, the post returns. Um, the mainstream historians just chose to overlook that part of history when they were writing about the the history of the uh, of the heroes of the frontier West. And we, we even talked in um, one of our previous discussions about movies, like uh, movies that have been made in the last 25 years or so and how there are scenes from movies that are related to actual happenings uh, that African-American soldiers participated in, but yet in the movies, it's always white soldiers. That's absolutely correct. Um, a full 20% of the cavalry in the West was black. Hmm. That's, that's all documented. That's part of the historical record. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. The Lincoln County War in uh, Lincoln County, New Mexico, uh, of Billy the Kid fame. That was quelled by by troopers from the 9th Cavalry from, from Fort Stanton. They were all black troopers. The troopers that hunted Billy the Kid were black troopers. The ones that, that hunted down Cochise and Victorio and Nana and Mangus Coloradus, all those, all of those stories that movies have been made of, were all black soldiers. Um, when you talk about the mountain men, a lot of the, well, quite a few of the mountain men were were, were black. Uh, uh, Jim Beckworth was one. He's always portrayed as a white man in movies. Um, uh, uh, Deadwood Dick was uh, uh, a black uh, was a was a former black soldier who became chief of a uh, a clan of the Crow tribe. Uh, uh, I mean, the, you know, part of the some of the some of the people who rode with the Hole in the Wall gang were black. There were black gunfighters. There were black merchants, hotel keepers, all kinds of things, and whole black towns that were formed after the Civil War by formerly enslaved people. But those kinds of things were never written about and never acknowledged, never recognized as part of the development of the frontier West. So that's what I went about trying to um, correct in, with the uh, Descendants Jubilee Project. So what uh, what ended up happening to uh, Buffalo soldiers following uh, following the the Indian Wars in the West? <clears throat> the um, the 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 Ninth and the Tenth Cavalry um, rotated rotated through posts that were peacetime. Uh, uh, they were they were, first of all they were regular Army soldiers. So during peacetime, they rotated through different posts. Um, they were stationed at West Point. They were stationed at different places around the country. 
but um, when the call went up for combatants for the Spanish-American War, the only combat-ready units that were available for uh, duty in Cuba were the 9th and 10th uh, Cavalry and the 24th and 25th Infantry. Uh, so those those, tro- those troopers, those soldiers, were gathered from around the West, and they were marshaled into um, locations near Tampa, Florida, and they were sent to uh, Cuba. I, I also read um, somewhere that as part of their uh, military duties, uh, Buffalo Soldier units also served sort of as the very first park rangers at places like uh, Yellowstone and Sequoia Kings Canyon. Yeah, yeah, uh, they were. They were first. They were the first. Uh, <laughs> believe it or not, they were the first border patrol. <laughs> well, Trump would love to hear that. Uh, and they did serve uh, as uh, 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 and so did other cavalry units too. But they were among the first of the. Uh, people sent in to protect the national parks the, the, in, during their infancy, infancy uh, through the uh, U.S. Forest Service. So, yeah, there is, a, there is a long, long, proud history of the 9th and 10th um, Mounted Cavalry uh, right up until the time where they got rid of horses and went to mechanized cavalry. And, and in fact, um, one of the very first superintendents for I think Yellowstone was uh, an army an army man named Charles Young, a Buffalo soldier, uh, and he now has his own national monument in Ohio. Yeah, uh, Charles Young was one of the people who was scheduled to attain the rank of general, who the U.S. government mustered out of service so that they wouldn't have to uh, raise him in rank to a. He was a bird colonel. But they wouldn't uh, allow him to proceed to uh, to uh, he, he, he never let him get his, his star. Hmm. But yeah, we used to do uh, <clears throat> during the nineties. We used to go on rides around the country uh, that we would call the Charles Young Ride. We did a ride every year, about ninety of us or a hundred of us in full regimental uniform with battle flags and. The whole nine yards uh, in his honor. Uh, he wanted it was uh, the the reason it was in his honor is when he w- tried to prove to the United States uh, government that he was still fit for duty, as he was as they were telling him he was not fit for duty and mustered him out. He rode from Ohio to Washington D.C. on horseback. Oh wow. And uh, that's why we did those rides. And uh, guys from all over the country would muster at certain locations um, to to mount up and ride trail in honor of Charles Young. Wow. Amazing. Well, I, I only have one more question for you. And, and uh, I, I think there's maybe a couple components to it. Do you think in the last, I don't know, 10 or 20 years or more, has the Park Service improved the way that it uh, talks about the contributions of African-American soldiers? Um, and the second component of that question is, what ways do you think the Park Service can continue to improve? Well, let me, let me, give, you, let me give you a couple of examples, uh, one in the East and one in the West. Uh, I'll start with the East. Um, are you familiar with the Battle of the Crater during the Civil War? I'm not, no. Okay, well, uh, there was an incident where uh, a tunnel had to be dug uh, through some fortifications. This was uh, done by the Union, and black soldiers dug, dug the tunnel, and uh, uh, at the last minute, against all of the battle plans that were done, the the generals decided to send in white regiments to try and uh, win the glory for what they saw was an easy victory. Well, the whole thing blew up in their faces, and uh, 
the this was in this was around uh, uh, the town of Petersburg, uh, Virginia. Uh, the the Battle of the Crater was a was a Union fiasco, and but it led to the uh, the taking of Richmond, and uh, contributed toward the end of the. Uh, Civil War, but the National Park Service, when you go to the Crater Battlefield or when you go to the um, Petersburg Battlefield, um, up until recently, they never mentioned the black regiments that were involved in that in that battle. When they when the tourists would come in to be seated in the diorama, uh, when the guides would talk about the battle and the different positions and and light up the battlefield and tell people where different units were and how the battle uh, evolved, they never acknowledged that black troops were a part, a major part uh, of that battle and that battlefield. What has happened recently, and I would say within the last 15 years, 10 to 15 years, I'm not sure when they actually did it, is they've expanded the story to include the United States Colored Troops. And it's, it was largely because the National Park Service wanted to get people of color involved in visiting the battlefields and the national parks. And it was a way to expand the participation of Americans in the history of the country. Uh, so they stopped just reaching out to um, white tourists, and they expanded it to include uh, things of interest to the black community. In the West, the the uh, have you ever been a Little Bighorn? I've I've never been there. Well, like go, in Montana, at the Battle of the Greasy Grass is what the what the Indians call it, but the Little Bighorn River, that battlefield was always told from the perspective of the white combatants. Um, now the National Park Service is allowing the story from the Indian perspective to be told. And they have now hired and trained uh, Native American uh, guides and employees who can tell that story. And there's a difference. <laughs> there's a real difference between the way the story was told by the Park Service earlier and the stories that have been passed down through uh, uh, Native American history, especially the, the history of the tribes that were involved, the, the Crow and the Cheyenne and the Sioux, uh, or I should say the Lakota. But uh, the, the National Park Service has made an effort in the last, oh, I would say in the last couple of decades to really expand uh, the story of what took place in different parts of the country and what the true history of the United States really is. Uh, I don't know if they're doing it everywhere, but just from what you're doing now, Matt, uh, it leads me to believe that the expansion is ongoing, and that history is gradually being corrected, and the National Park Service is in the forefront of doing that. So I really applaud it. It's late, uh, but it's still being done. And, and I think for a government to recognize um, its own mistakes in presenting history to its people and attempt to correct it without a lot of fanfare, uh, and there's no, there's not, there's there's no, you know, there's there's no brass bands or or advertising campaigns that go along with this. This is just something that they've done, trying to be more accurate about what happened in different places around the country and what the contributions were uh, for the the people who actually participated in the historical events. And I, I think you touched on this kind of early in the interview, the, the idea that history needs to be relevant to, to everyone, and that includes, you know, telling the stories of, of folks that 
have not those stories haven't been told in the past. So I, I do think that the Park Service is trying, and, and I think that that's happening um, everywhere in the service. Well, that, I mean, and that's good. And it's 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 uh, and there's a there's a, a a serious attempt for accuracy, uh, and that's important because that will make I know I know in the black community it makes people more interested in visiting national parks now or historic battlefields and and things like that, and people have a better vision of what government can actually do to contribute to the day-to-day life of an ordinary person in the country. So I think it's uh, I think it's a good thing. Well, I don't have any other questions, but I just want to say thank you. This has been this has been a great interview, and um, I really appreciate the time that you've taken to to share all of your knowledge with us. Well, I uh, listen. I appreciate being asked. There's a, a lot to talk about in this interview, and we really can't cover it all. Uh, but if I had to pick one thing, uh, I would say uh, it was really interesting to me the discussion about his role, kind of as an educator in the schools, and how he can. Uh, go in and, and meet with kids uh, dressed in the period clothing, and they have an opportunity in a lot of cases to see somebody that looks like them, uh, that's portraying an important part of history that maybe they're not getting in the curriculum, and that can make history more relevant to them, and so he can play a really important role uh, in that way. Yeah, definitely, Matt. One of the quotes that really stood out to me, and I copied down when I was re-listening to the interview, is, when you don't know who you are, you don't really understand who you can be. Um, so doing interviews like this with Mr. Sertain, um, doing archaeology of the underrepresented and looking at social history is so important. Um, you know, as Mr. Sertain said again, 20% of the cavalry in in the West at that time were African-American, and they're not represented in popular media today at all, not in movies, not in retrospectives. So hopefully the National Park Service can continue giving a voice to the Buffalo Soldier, as Mr. Sertain said he'd seen some changes over the years. Um, And uh, hopefully these changes uh, will inspire these heroes' descendants. Thanks for listening. In our next episode, we'll be talking to Marty Tagg, who excavated a Buffalo Soldier camp at Benita Canyon. The National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast is a production of the Southern Arizona Office of the National Park Service. Our artwork was designed by Laura Varen Burkhart. Justin Mossman composed our music. We look forward to hearing from you. Matt and I will be with you again next month.